Psalm 2. If you want to take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 2 if you're not there already. The Psalms are a section of the Bible that I have grown in my uh, appreciation for, grown in my um, desire to teach and preach from. Not that by any means I always got a reminder of it. The first is that God, when you read the Psalms, there's a lot of statements in the Psalms that, this will sound weird, but that sound unbiblical, right? <laughs> there's just things that they say that you're not supposed to say. If you go through there, it's kind of just this raw emotion comes out. And the psalmist asks God, why have you forsaken me? He turns to God and you've hidden yourself from me. You've cast me off. You didn't keep your promise. The psalmist will ask that. And yet there's always an underlying belief and faith and return that Actually, the promises of God are real, the promises of God are true. But yeah, the Psalms are kind of these two things running beside each other. The promises of God that are set before man. And then just the raw emotion, the feeling, the experience of man that we all have at times. That, okay, God, you, you promised to be near me, but it doesn't feel like you're anywhere close to me right now. That's a real experience. And the psalmists cry out in praise and worship and prayer with that exact experience. You promised me wisdom, but I don't know up and down. I'm totally confused right now. You promised me direction, but I don't know. You talk over and over again about all of your plans coming fast and your purposes prevailing, but it feels like anything but your purpose is happening right now. And so you have these kind of these real sort of cries of the soul, these real emotions. Rob coming out in prayer and in praise through psalms as they call out to their God. And then you have just psalms that are rich with the power and the grace, the majesty of our God, that indeed, amidst the confusion, he is wise. Amidst the hardship, he is steady. He is faithful and will always be true to his promises. And that's kind of the psalms as they run, run their course. As you look at the psalms as well, they're not just haphazardly thrown together. You have kind of 150 psalms serving sort of, someone is like a hymn book for the people of God as they would worship. But there is order, there is strategy, there is significance in the way they're placed together. Within psalms, you've got to have five specific books, and the first two psalms of the first book, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, really set the tone forward for the rest of our reading, our worship in the psalms. They approach living life before God, understanding his promises and yet feeling this angst, this turmoil, this tension. And Psalm 1 and 2 set the parameters then for us reading the psalm, and they do it within uh, two covenants. And in Psalm 1, you see, within the covenant of the law of Moses, the covenant made with Moses, the law given to him. And there is a call in that to believe and to obey. To trust and obey, if you remember that song as a little kid. Faith and obedience is the call. And tied to that is joy and happiness. Tied to that is blessing. And then the opposite of that is true. For those who do not believe, for those who do not obey, tied to that is danger. Tied to that is God's wrath. Tied to that is cursing. And so the psalmist says it goes forward in the midst of the confusion of life, and yet the promises of God, trust and obey, back to the Mosaic Covenant. And then Psalm 2 goes back even a little further. 
It goes back to Genesis 3.15, to the covenant that is made there. Remember where God promises to build his kingdom. He promises that he will set a king, but he also tells us that it's going to take place in the midst of great enmity, of hardship. And you have that where he promises that from the, the seed of a woman who provides someone who will be a deliverer, who will overcome for us, but he will be at enmity with the serpent, with Satan. And so he promises that he will build his kingdom, but he will do it in the midst of enemy territory, if you will. And the rest of the Psalms then continue to look back at that, that indeed the kingdom of God is advancing. But it is taking place in the midst of all kinds of temptation to turn your back on that kingdom. It's taking place with all kinds of adversity working against the building of the kingdom. Yet the promise is true, and we'll see it in Psalm 2 today. That God will be the king, and he will establish his kingdom. And so the Psalms kind of start to unfold and take place in light of, of these two Psalms for us. More specifically, if we look at Psalm 2, it's built again on a couple more layers of covenant. Alright, so hang with on this introduction, and you'll see. Then as we look at the psalm, the richness of it, it's built first on the Abrahamic covenant. You remember back in Genesis 12, that early covenant that God promises that through Abraham, he will bless all the peoples, all the nations of the earth. There's this promise of blessing, a gracious covenant given through Abraham, that through him, grace, blessing will extend to all the nations. But it happens through Abraham. Happens through his seed, happens through the faith that Abraham possessed. And then you see the next layer of, of covenant that's even closer to the surface here, all throughout Psalm 2, and that's the Davidic covenant. And there we have the promise that God will give a king. God will provide a Davidic king who will rule and reign. And so now you understand, okay, the Abrahamic covenant of blessing to all the nations is going to take place through. The Davidic kingship. For all those who come under that king, who, who dwell under that reign, they will experience that blessing, no matter who, no matter where, to all the nations. But it comes through the blessing to the nations, comes through the rule and the reign of the king. And so it's on those two pillars then that Psalm 2 is written for us. Historically in Psalm 2, you see, we'll see as we get into it, that as David reigns, he's on the throne, and there are vassal kingdoms, in the sense that he has several territories that he rules over, and there's different vassals or kings who rule in those territories, but as submissive to David. You know the story, David is constantly people trying, he's constantly at battle, he is the warrior king. And so they're seeking to overthrow David and his rule and his reign, this, this kingdom that David is that being built here through David. And they're trying to usurp the rule and the reign of David, trying to burst off those bonds. And we'll see that here in a minute. But quickly, you realize in the psalm that yes, there's some historical event, but we are to rise above it. And we see that David is a shadow of the king to come. And his kingdom is a shadow of the kingdom that God is building through his anointed one. 
And so we'll see what it really means to burst off the bonds of that kingdom. Because we've seen the blessing of Abraham to all the nations. It comes through the rule and the reign of the king. And to try to burst forth and get out from underneath of that reign and that rule is to no longer have any of that blessing, any of that joy. Is to have curse. Is that punishment? <clears throat> and come to Psalm 2, as, as we said earlier, Psalms kind of work as a hymn book for the people of God. They would gather together and they would use the Psalms for, for their worship, sometimes singing, sometimes speaking them, um, different ways they would work. Psalm 2, you have not a play, but almost something of an operatic type of, of feel with it. There's four different voices or speakers that we'll look at in Psalm 2. Several commentators suggest that it, when this song would have been done in worship, it wouldn't have been by a full choir, but it would have been by a quartet of voices, four people, each one speaking the voice, speaking from the perspective or the emphasis of each voice of the song. So that in their worship as they would do it, though visually and vocally, you would get to see each section kind of proclaimed and, and each person and it's their perspective and their significance and the, the cadence of it and the whole thing would grow and build in this type of worship before our God. So as we look at Psalm 2, we're going to look at it according to those four those four voices. And we'll see that it rises quickly above David. Because what's promised here, what's going on here is much more than a mere man ruling. It is much more than the kingdom of man. It belongs to God and to his anointed, to Jesus Christ. So verses 1 through 3, this is voice number 1, and this is the voice of rebellious man. The voice of rebellious man. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. You just read here the, the rebellion in the verbs that are used. I mean, it's so full of, of turmoil and angst and that, that rebellious uprising and wickedness. The psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage? As the idea of people congregating together in protest, not in a peaceful protest, but in almost a riot type of atmosphere where emotions are boiling over. Historically, they're looking to throw off the restraints, the reign of King David. They're raging against it. And they said we quickly rise above it and we see that. In this, it's look here at Jesus Christ and the reign that he is establishing. You look around the world, you see that people are raging against it. They want nothing to do with the reign of Christ. Look how it continues on here. Verse 1 again, why the nations rage. Says and the people's plot in vain. They're raging their plotting. An interesting thing, if, if you look back at Psalm chapter 1, should just be on the same page there probably for you. In verse 2, it says that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That word there, meditate, 
is the same word, same word used here for the people plotting against the reign of Jesus Christ. So it has the idea you should have meditating on the word of God in a positive sense of, of mulling over, of, of thinking, of giving great thought to it. Now in this negative sense of, of plotting, of giving much thought to how I can break free from the reign of Christ, break free from his reign that's over me. Continuing as it builds this this case here from the voice of the rebellious man. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We see there against, against God and against his anointed. The Davidic covenant makes very clear who the anointed one, the chosen one is in the Davidic line. It's against God and it is against his son, Jesus Christ, who they take a stand against. And you see that word there, against the Lord and against his anointed. Basically, this idea of against boiled down could be our definition for sin. To be against God, to be against Christ. The idea of sin is to stand in rebellion, to be against God. Whatever it is that he has set forth, we stand against it. The basic definition of sin. And so before we get too carried away and think of okay, just the worst person in the world we can think of, that's the one who is, you know, plotting and rebelling and standing against. I think we experience this on some level in our own hearts and our own lives daily. Of plotting and thinking of making decisions against God and against his anointing. We would rather gratify the flesh through our eyes and through our imagination and pursue the righteous rule and reign of Jesus Christ and that what he sets forth for us. We go to satisfy the flesh through the use of our tongue that doesn't build up and encourage it's full of grace but it's full of gossip and cutting down and manipulation and dishonesty and flattery and boasting. We take a stand against the rule and the reign, the, the kingdom rule, Christ, small ways. And then you look at the world around, you look at people and you see this is the way of life. Taking a stance against the reign of Christ, they'll look to plot for any other way to live except according to how Christ would tell them to live. Look how it goes on there, it says in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. Any way to get out from under the reign of Christ. I don't want to be under his law. I don't want to be under his authority. I want to live how I want to live. You see how backwards that is. They get loose from the yoke of Christ. They think there's somehow freedom in that. But what is it Christ himself says? The yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's in Christ that we find freedom. It's under his reign that we find that joy and that blessing. But the world is blind to it. Those who have not placed faith and trust in Christ are blind to that fact. That blessing and peace come under the reign of Christ. They think it's just it's bondage for me. It's just restraint. It's just a bunch of things I can't do. It's things I can't pursue. It's, it's time I can't spend on myself. I need to burst free from it. I need to burst free from this rule and this reign. The psalmist is telling us, okay, but as soon as you do that, you're in bondage to darkness because joy and blessing 
exists only through the promise made to Abraham to all the nations by way of the rule and the reign of the king. Trying to burst forth from it is not giving you freedom. It is giving you death and darkness. Maybe you might feel like, oh man, I can just get a breath. I'm not going to rule and reign of Christ. That is the seed of life, Satan. It is bondage. It is sin. Burst the bonds apart. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. You'll see where this is quoted in Scripture in the New Testament. We see this from the time that God sets his king in 2 Samuel. In the Davidic line, you start to see people trying to burst forth from the rule and the reign of that king. They don't want to live according to the rule of the kingdom. They don't want to live according to the law. They don't want to live according to the righteousness that is set there to guide and protect and to rule and reign that kingdom. They want to burst forth from it. That continues to grow. That continues to build. Bursting forth from the rule and the reign of Christ. Now you get to Acts. We've seen that this bursting forth, this trying to overpower, overrule the kingdom of Christ has reached its pinnacle. And in Acts chapter 4, beginning in uh, verse 24, released from prisons, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, made the heavens. And the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. Referring back to this words here, Psalm chapter 2, then it goes on, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Jesus Christ is the anointed one, and they have gathered together against him, who both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, it's everybody, Jews, Gentiles, everyone, gathered together against Christ, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan and your destiny to take place, see that even in these actions they are not outside the sovereign care plan of Jesus Christ. And yet this plotting against bursting forth, trying to burst forth from the kingdom of God sees its pinnacle at the cross. As we come to the Christmas season, here we have the picture of Jesus Christ, the king, God become man, king entering the world, lowly David in the manger, and immediately men start plotting against him. They have all the little babies killed there in Bethlehem trying to kill the Son of God, Jesus. Throughout his life, constantly trying to be entrapped and ensnared all the way down until Jesus Christ is a young man. All the way to the cross. And so they think, okay, here is our best effort, our best attempt to overthrow the king, to birth forth from the kingdom, will kill him. 
when they murdered Jesus, the Son of God, King offered the manger. You know the story, so you got victory in it. They could not hold him. Sin had no hold of him. Even in their greatest attempt to stop the kingdom of God by killing the king, it had no effect. You see, it was indeed according to Jesus Christ's plan that paid the ransom for many, for his people. Before we move on to voice number two, just make two points. First point is that to deny and reject Jesus is to deny and reject God. I think most people here are probably comfortable with the idea of God. A supreme being, a, a benevolent being, heaven, a, a God who is in control. The scripture gets much more specific that God accomplishes his plans through the person and the work of Jesus Christ specifically, through the gospel events of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his mediation as he now reigns. John 5 tells him, dishonor the Son, you've dishonored the Father. Psalm 2 would tell us, if you were against God, you were against his, if you were against the anointed, you are against God. I think that that's where the rubber meets the road for some of us, is we have a little different idea of Jesus, and what the call is from Christ, and what exactly his accomplishments were, and Scripture is clear, to reject Christ, to reject the anointed one, is to reject God. Then the second thing is just that we wouldn't grow despondent or overwhelmed when we see that the world despises Jesus. I'm not saying that it shouldn't matter to us. It's still a big deal. But it shouldn't be overwhelming or blow you away when you think, oh, what, America's not a Christian country anymore? And it was. People will rage against God. They will plot. They will scheme. They will think, how can I burst bonds of this kingdom? I'll think of any way I want to live, and I will live that way. This freedom exists outside the reign Christ. He says, no, it doesn't. You shouldn't be surprised when the plotting continues, when the aggression picks up, trying to exist outside the reign of Christ. You shouldn't go discouraged in that. It's said, the Bible says it's going to happen. We see it happening. We take heart that Christ will build his kingdom. So as we continue back in Psalm chapter 2 then, We now move to the second voice, and that is the voice of God. Verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So when it comes to God as speaker, at first he can't speak because he's laughing. You ever had that experience where... You should be laughing, but you are. The fact that you shouldn't be makes it that much funnier. 
I know some of you guys, that happens in church where something strikes you funny for some reason, or you try not to laugh at funnier deaths. When I was like, you know, I probably was five or six years old, we, I lived in New Hampshire at the time, and um, my brother just had a birthday. For part of the birthday, they played this game, Pin the Tail on a Donkey. This guy was like a picture of a donkey. You get blindfolded, you have this little tail, you try to pin it. You know, where the tail is supposed to go. It's funny because it ends up all over the place. <clears throat> well, they had this party. It was a couple weeks later, but we still had this game. So we had some friends over. My parents were down in the living room. There's a stairwell. The top of the stairwell is this landing. So us kids decided to play Pit the Tail of the Donkey at the landing on the front of the stairwell. We didn't have a blindfold. So I got a pair of swimming trunks. You know, they had like a, those like mesh underwear inside. You pull it on your head. Sit right on the chair. <laughs> so that, was, that was my blindfold. So, my brother, he's like three or four years older than me. He spins me around several times, getting me dizzy. And now I have his tail. Here's the donkey. Here's the stairwell. And I just got spun around. I've got swimming trunks on my face, so I can't see what's going on. And the legs can under. I take off immediately, you're off, and down the stairs I go. <clears throat> But my dad and the adults, of course, they jump up. What's going on? My dad runs over, finds out quickly I'm okay, and he loses it. <laughs> <laughs> he is laughing like crazy. And so I go from being like hurt and scared as a little kid, and now I'm just like embarrassed and mad. <laughs> and so I'm mad. I'm yelling him to stop laughing. If he doesn't stop laughing, I'm going to. You know, but I'm still severe, like swimming trunks in my head. The madder I get, the more my dad is laughing. And it just, you know, there was no consoling me, and there was no stopping his laughter at that point. That's kind of the picture that you get here. You know, maybe a little scratch in the picture, but it's kind of the picture you get here. God's not looking at him laughing like, oh, this is silly. He's looking at me, he's laughing that, like, this is so pathetic. You ever have like a little kid who comes up to you and demands something from you or maybe makes some sort of threat? And it's like this little two-year-old. What is he or she going to do to me? And it's almost comical. And so he looks at the kings and, and the nations and all of their plotting and all of their, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to burst, burst the bonds. This is how we're going to overcome the reign of Christ. And God isn't confused. He's not unsettled by it. He's not uh-oh, I need a backup plan. He looks at it, and he laughs. How pathetic. The nations are but a drop in the bucket. What are they going to do to stop the thwart the kingdom of God? Absolutely nothing. You see in that response, you see God's sovereignty. Indeed, he sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That indeed, no purpose of God can be thwarted. As we read in Acts, even the worst that men could do, Gentiles, Jews, killing the Son of God, is according to the predestined plan of the Father. The best that they can do, the sense that he laughs at. And then he speaks. That's when it gets bad. He speaks to them in his wrath. He terrifies them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. 
my holy hill. God has his purpose and his plan. He's working it through Jesus Christ. He has set his king on Zion, his holy hill, and he tells you he is doing everything to purpose that that kingdom will not be thwarted. But every knee and every tongue will bow to that king. Now, in joy and hope and blessing, and later in wrath and in terror and in fury. Plotting the schemes, the most worst things, the worst people can think of to do. God laughs at it. As soon as he opens his mouth, there's fury and they are terrified. Because the victory's already won. He has set his king on Zion, on that holy hill. The covenant between God the Father and God the Son has got the promise to give the Son of people or Jesus the promised Father to accomplish everything necessary for the salvation of those people, that he would not lose any of them. Now God promises to exalt that Son to King. His kingdom will not be thwarted. It will not fall. So the voice of God speaks. How much confidence and comfort should we take in our kingdom ministry? Knowing that God will not fail in building his kingdom. And we look around and it feels like, man, it's such an uphill battle, and we kind of stumble our way through at times, and our gospel witness is not as faithful as it should be, and when it is faithful, it's not done very well. And our engagement to the community and our ministry to the outcasts isn't what it should be. If we continue to believe and obey and go hard after Christ, the promises he will build his kingdom. Nothing, not even trying to kill the son, can stop him. It just works in his plan for his glory. <clears throat> now we come to voice number three. Verses 7 through 9, see voice number 3, and this is the voice of the Davidic king of the Messiah. Verses 7 to 9, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here's the fulfillment, 3.15, Genesis 3.15. The son who will defeat Satan, who will build a kingdom that will not fail. I'll tell the decree, here's what the Lord has set in place. Here's what he has purposed. It cannot be changed. He is speaking of the decree of God. You are my son, today I have begotten you, referring obviously to Christ there. The Son of God, begotten, not that he didn't exist and now all of a sudden he's God sort of like brought him into existence and begotten him. I think it's referring here that he will be made known to the world. Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas, the incarnation, birth of the Savior. He is made known to the world to establish his kingdom upon the earth. By the decree of God, the anointed one will be made known. 
I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of your earth your possession. Again, back to that promise through Abraham. To Abraham, the promise that the nations will be blessed. We see that's going to take place through the Davidic king. People try to burst out of the bonds, but you should not. Because under the reign of Christ, there is blessing to all the nations. We see this starting to be fulfilled in Pentecost, don't we? As the preaching goes forth, the Spirit comes upon the people from all different types of nations who are gathered there. There's an inheritance for Christ. The church begins to spread. By the decree of God, this is the voice of the King, this is the voice of the Messiah. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. There it just talks about, we think of Christ, we think of Jesus as, as, as Scripture portrays him, as a lowly, meek, and humble. And yet, we never see him as weak and incompetent and uncapable. It's that picture of the shepherd who tenderly, lovingly cares for his sheep with great compassion. He is ready to rise up, kill the beast that tries to take the life of one of those sheep. 